0: They said it was going to be a different song that came before the scripture reading. Uh we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 7 through 12. If you want to turn there with me. Just a few verses. I want to encourage you to really just listen to the word of God cuz it's really easy to just let it go over your head during the scripture reading, so Really turn your ear to it. Ephesians 4, 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth?
1: All right. Well, good morning, church. It's nice to be with you again. And we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 7 through 12, the verses that Jason just read for us. And if you're a guest here, welcome. Uh, if it's your first time and you're not, you haven't been here before, we, uh, we're making our way through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we're just going chunk by chunk and verse by verse. We took a break for the summer, but last week we started back with chapter four. So this week we're going to go a little bit further And look at verses 7 through 12. If you remember, um, last week's theme was unity. This whole, all of chapter 4 is about um, how to have a healthy church. The point of chapter 3 was what the church is. The point of chapter 2 is, and chapter 1 is really how the church came into existence. So really, the the letter to the church at Ephesus is is a letter all about the church. What the church is, what God's purpose for the church is, and so forth. But last week we saw unity as a key aspect of of a healthy church, verses 1 through 6. We saw that there are three ways to, that we have to uh, maintain unity. First is to be compelled by our calling. Second is to be Christ-like in our conduct. And third is to be controlled by our commonality, what we have in common with each other. And this week we're going to look at the opposite of unity in some ways, which is diversity. Because if you remember, what we said last week is that the church... Is fundamentally exists to reflect God. God has called a people out of a sinful, broken world to be His own, and that through that people He would display Himself. And so, if God is going to display Himself through a people, then that people has to be a group that's unified and diverse because God Himself is that. God is both unity and diversity, He is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in person. One essence, three distinct persons with three distinct responsibility roles and functions. So if the church is going to be that, then it must be a church that... If the church is going to be a representation and display of God, then it must be a church that values unity, that values oneness in the essentials of the faith, that values oneness in its behavior and its conduct, patterned after the likeness of Jesus Christ, but also... That church must not be so united that it's uniform. In other words, where everybody looks and acts the exact same way, and there's no appreciation for diversity. And that's what we're going to look at this week, is diversity, the value of diversity in the church. John Stott writes, Although there is only one body, this unity is not to be misconstrued as some sort of lifeless or colorless uniformity. We are not to imagine every Christian is an exact replica of every other as if we had all been mass produced in some celestial factory. Okay? That would be uniformity, and that's not what Paul's teaching here in Ephesians chapter four. In fact, the church at Ephesus is to be a church and the church in Owensboro, specifically this church, Heritage Baptist Church, is to be a church that's marked by diversity as well. So in order for a church to be healthy, it has to be both unified and diverse. You notice in verse 7, the but there at the beginning marks a shift. Verse 7 begins with that word, but grace was given to each one. See, this is Paul saying, okay, I've been talking about unity for these first six verses, but I want to contrast something and make an equally important point. Namely, I want to shift from talking about unity to talking about diversity, from talking about what makes the whole church in common, and what individuals in the church and their unique differences, what they bring to the church as well, and why that's important. So remember, the church is to be both united and diverse. We've already seen this in the letter. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, if you look back there, it was God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven on earth, unity, to unite all things in him. But chapter 3, verse 6 underscores that that's a diverse plan. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you got Jew-Gentile, two very different cultural groups, in one church, following one Lord, Jesus Christ. But they are two very different cultures, two very different kinds of people. And the goal of all of that is to display the God who is both unified and and diverse. So here's the theme of this morning's sermon. We're going to look at three ways. We looked at three ways last week we we maintain unity. This week we're going to look at three ways we honor diversity. Three ways that we honor diversity in the body of Christ. And it has to do with the role of Jesus and the way we honor Him. It has to do with the way we honor leaders and the role that God has given them to play and the way we honor members. So three roles, three distinct Uh, responsibilities and functions in the church. The role of the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the role of leaders, and the role of members. So we're going to look at one, uh, each one of those one at a time. Let's start with where we should start, the Lord Jesus himself. That's where the text starts. All right, so first of all, the first way that we honor diversity in the church is we honor Jesus as the giver of gifts. We honor Jesus as the giver of gifts. Look with me, if you would, at verse 7. By the way, if you're a guest, and, you're, and maybe maybe you're not a guest, but you're relatively new to the Bible, I don't want to assume that you've looked at a Bible before, okay? So the big letter at the top is chapter that, that big four there. That's chapter four, and all the other letters are, are verse letters. So if you're following along, and you've managed to find the book of Ephesians by now, which I hope you have, uh, go ahead and go down to that seventh verse there, chapter four, verse seven. It says, but, to, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Keep reading. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul starts no less than four times in these four verses, verses 7 through 10, does he talk about Jesus as the giver of gifts? He says in verse 7, grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So twice in verse 7, he mentioned something being given. Christ's gift and grace being given. Verse 9, again, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also, de- or sorry, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. That's a quotation from Psalm 68. We'll look at that in a minute. And then verse 11, and he gave... So again and again, we see the Lord Jesus in these four verses, four times, he mentions that he's giving something, and he's giving gifts. Now the question is, what are these gifts that the ascended, resurrected, reigning King Jesus, head of the church, is giving to the church? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7, he says, but grace was given to each one of us. Now what's that? Is this talking about salvation grace? You know, grace is a big theme in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we could say, and chapter 2 is all about the grace of God and salvation, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a particular kind of grace that's being given by the Lord Jesus, and it's gifts to the church. Not the gift of spiritual life, but the gift of enabling grace. The point is, is that every believer... He says, each one of us, that's every believer in Christ, every member of the church has been given a gift by Jesus, which is to be used to serve and build up the church. Look at chapter three, verse eight. Paul gives himself as one example. Chapter three, verse eight. To me, though I am the very least of all this gift, the saints, this grace was given. You see that language again? This grace was given. Grace was given. Well, what grace did you receive, Paul? to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul's particular grace that he was given was to be an apostle, a sent one of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles, non-Jews. That was a unique call that he himself had as a a representative delegate of Jesus to take the gospel to people who had not yet heard it. And verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So he had this unique gift given to him. He says, to me this was given. But notice, it's not just to Paul. It's not just church leaders. It's not just apostles that get get gifts. It's Christians. To each one of us, chapter 4, verse 7, was given a gift, a grace-enabled gift to be used to serve and build up the church. So I would define it as this. This grace is the particular enablement given by Jesus to you to empower you for ministry in the church and through the church. It's a particular enablement given by Jesus to you to empower you for ministry. And notice this helped, this uh, interesting phrase in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now what's that talking about? According to the measure of Christ's gift. That means Jesus determined what gift you would have and how much of it you would have. According to the measure of Christ's gift. So not only does Christ gift each believer with a gift to be used to, for the building up of the church, but he also determines the amount of the gift. To you. Now, that's, that's easy to understand, I think. What complicates things a little bit is the next couple of verses. Why all of a sudden does Paul make this point about diversity and that each one of us have received a gift for the building up of the body, and then all of a sudden turn and quote Psalm 68 and explain it a little bit? Because that's what he does. In verse 8, he says, Therefore, it says, talking about Scripture, Psalm 68 specifically. He when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Well, Paul is thinking when he talks about Jesus giving gifts to people and to the church, immediately what he thinks of is Psalm 68 because it talks about someone who ascends on high and gives gifts to men. In other words, he cites Psalm 68 Christologically he cites Psalm 68 as ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which is what all Psalms are ultimately fulfilled in. Jesus himself taught us that. But Paul sees here the incarnation, that is the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Remember, we don't believe that Jesus was just born a regular man. He was the Son of God, eternal second person of the Trinity, who became a man. So Paul sees the incarnation and ascension of Christ as evidence that god has come and rescued his people as a victorious for, victorious king and it has having having achieved this victory through his death burial and resurrection from the dead defeating sin death hell and the grave which is the thrust of psalm 68 that king as a victorious king now has received the gifts of his spoils okay so picture it it's a very easy picture to understand I mean, I don't, we don't live in a day where high powered kings are running around but in this day, is very common, especially in the Old Testament. What happens is a king would defeat his enemies, spoil them, get all the treasures and all the gifts, and then bring them and dispense them, if he was a generous king or he would keep them for himself as he wasn't, uh, to the people. And what's pictured here is Jesus has now descend, ascended on high. He's been resurrected, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he presently rules and reigns over all things. And he's been given head of all things for the church, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And as a result of that, he has spoiled Satan and death and sin and the grave. And he has has led a host of captives, all the spiritual forces that have been defeated by Christ as the conqueror. He has now earned the right, so to speak, as the resurrected king to give gifts. And so, as a result of his defeat of sin, Jesus has gone back to heaven and he did not leave us empty-handed. No, he is the ascended Lord who has poured out his gifts as the victorious general on us, his people. So notice verse 9, in saying he ascended, Paul's going to now talk about what this psalm is referring to. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But they also descended into the lower parts of the earth, possibly a reference to the grave or Hades. He who descended is the one who has ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So he's talking, he's a, the big point here is he's applying Psalm 68 to Jesus Christ as the victor, as the one who has defeated sin, defeated death, defeated our enemies, and as a result is able to give us gifts. And so let me apply this first point as Jesus being the giver of gifts. First of all, Jesus saved you, believer, not just from sin, but for service, right? He didn't just give you one kind of grace, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of reconciliation, the grace of salvation. He gave you a spiritual gift and, and pro- multiple gifts, a gift package, so to speak, with which he desi- has designed you and your gift to you use to build up his body. When we are not persuaded that Christ has bought us from sin for service, and we're not eager to find out what that is and use it for the building up of ministry, we war against Jesus' work for us on the cross. Because he didn't just save us to forgive us. He saved us to empower us for service. I mean, we've already seen this in Ephesians, haven't we? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We say, yay, that's great. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of works. I love it. It's free. It's great. It's glorious. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. See, salvation doesn't end with you getting reconciled to God. It begins there. It begins there. And then we're to take this rescue from sin and also see that we're to be invite we are called and invited into this life of good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He didn't just create a, or save us from sin. He created us for something, recreated us for something, namely service. So we have to keep that in mind. We honor Jesus that way. You want to honor Jesus with your life? You want to honor Jesus for your salvation? Serve in ministry. That's why he called you. That's why he created you. That's why he gifted you. We honor him that way as the giver of that gift. Remember, do we have to go back to the parable of the talents and see an illustration of this? Remember that in Matthew where the, uh, the, you have the various people who are given various things to, to steward and, and some are given more and some are given less. And then there's that one who just hides his talent in the ground and says, oh, I knew you were a, a severe master and I knew, I knew that you would want this and so I, I protected it for you. And he says, you evil, wicked, unprofitable servant. I wanted more on my investment than for you just to bury it in the sand. No, the Lord Jesus wants return on his investment, brothers and sisters. He wants return on his investment. And the judgment seat of Christ will be, in part, not just a glorious thing, it will be an amazing thing in which we are declared righteous and forgiven and and will receive our full inheritance, but also Jesus is going to want some return on the investment that he's given you. And we better not tell him we buried it in the ground. We better be engaged in fruitful service for him. Second application of this point would be within the unity of the body, we have to keep in mind that each member has a distinct service to render for the effective functioning of the whole. So we, there, therefore, we must not think that our gift, that the gift that we've been given is the most important gift in the body. <laughs> oh, if everybody, was just, if everybody just did things the way I wanted them done, then the body would be healthy. Wrong. The body would be deformed. It would be. If everybody had a preaching gift, or everybody had a mercy gift, or any, or any any number of gifts, I mean, if that was all the gift, it would be a deformed body and it would not reflect the Lord Jesus very well. So we must value the diversity of gifts that the Lord Jesus has given, because he has not chosen we honor Him that way. We honor Him not just by, the, by appreciating and stewarding well the gift that we've received, but also valuing and appreciating and loving the gifts that He has given to others. Another thing, third application here, is that if diversity is not honored, unity will not be fostered. If we do not honor diversity and seek to develop it and appreciate it and value it, We war against unity. Because, you see, these things go together. You have to have unity coexisting alongside diversity. And so this requires us to not only honor unity and seek to foster it, but also honor diversity and seek to foster it as well. And a fourth and final application. Since each gift is measured out by Christ, is there any room for jealousy in the body of Christ? Who decided what your gift would be? And who decided how much of it you would have? (laughs) See, there's no room for jealousy in the body of Christ because our gifts are given to us by another and the amount that is given is given by another. See, the only difference is the difference of the gift does not determine the value of the gift. The difference of the gift does not determine the value of the gift. What determines the value of the gift is how well it's stewarded. Okay, so it's only the individual's use of it within the body that determines the value of that gift, not the gift itself, because the gift itself was given by the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's honor him, brothers and sisters, as as the giver of gifts to our body. Every church that has Jesus Christ as its head. Has gifts that have been given by Jesus Christ, you are a gift to Heritage Baptist Church. You are, you yourself are a gift to this body, and we want you to we want you to see yourself as that, but also want you to see each other as that, because we honor Jesus together as that when we recognize that as He being the giver. So that's the first point. Second point, let's move on here to the second point. Second, we not only honor diversity when we honor Jesus as the giver of gifts, but we honor leaders. When we honor them as equippers of saints. Okay, verse 11. And he gave... Now, this is not an exhaustive list of the gifts that Jesus has given. He's specifically focusing here on gifts of leadership. All right? Leadership to the church. He's not talking about all the gifts that Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 mention, about all the diversity of gifts that have been given to the body. We'll get to those. But here he's focused on just a small slice of gifts, which are those gifts of leadership to the church. And he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints. So you want to honor the leaders that Jesus has given? Honor them and understand their role correctly. So Paul mentions five Possibly four, but at least at least four, possibly five, um, unique positions of leadership in the church. He starts with the apostles. Now, the apostles have already been mentioned in this letter. If you know, turn, look back at chapter uh, two, verse twenty, actually, we'll start at verse nineteen. He says, "So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens." Talking about the Gentiles as as people part of the church as well, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So let me just get clear here. Saints, okay? When it says saints there, that's talking about members of the household of God. That's church members. Saints are church members in the Bible. That's all they are. If, when it says that, that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are given to equip the saints, it's not talking about dead holy people. It's talking about real living members of the church. I'm a pastor. I don't know how to equip holy people who are in heaven. Saints are Christians in the church. That's all they are. That's why Paul begins often, and he begins this letter. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's just writing to church members. They're saints. They're holy ones. They're holy ones because they're in union with the Holy One, Jesus. So, these leaders are given to equip the saints. Now, lest I get ahead of myself, let's wind back to chapter 2, verse 19. You were fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we picture the household as a building. The church is a building. And it's got Jesus as the cornerstone. He's the indispensable stone in the building. You take that stone out, the whole building falls. That's why he's called the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone in the wall. And notice he gave certain gifts as foundational. The apostles and the prophets. They were foundation to the church on which the church could be built. Now, I, think, I, I don't think necessarily that Paul has in view here the 12, necessarily the, only the 12 apostles in, chapter tw- in verse 12. But he certainly has them at least in view. See, we can speak of apostleship or the gift of an apostle in two ways. We can, give it, we can talk about it in a capital A sense, and we can talk about it in a lowercase a sense. Okay, When I talk about it in a capital A sense, here's what I mean. The original 12 that walked with Jesus... And those who subsequently, like Paul, were called to be an apostle. Those foundational offices of the church on which the church is established and built. But there's also another sense in which we could speak of a sort of gift of apostleship. Not an office, not a capital A apostle as those, someone who had seen the resurrected Christ himself and walked with him on earth. But as someone who's gifted in pioneering church planting kind of leadership. Okay, God still gifts people with the ability to plant churches where Christ is not named. And I think we dishonor the giver of the gifts and the person doing the work if we don't say that they are doing apostolic ministry. Now, I don't mean they're apostles in the capital A sense. I don't mean that, oh, they're the original 12. They're just like those. They're just like Peter, right? No, but Jesus is still wanting his mission to advance his church to go forward. And therefore he's still giving that kind of leadership and gift to the church. It doesn't mean that they necessarily are all on the same level as the foundational apostles and prophets. It's not what I'm saying. The same thing could be said about the prophets, he says he gave the apostles and the prophets. Now, in a capital P sense of prophecy, that was a foundational role to complete the revelation that God was giving to the church. Notice chapter 3, verse 6. Or chapter 3, verse 5, sorry. Which was not made known. Verse 4, we'll start back where, instead of jumping into a sentence, mid-sentence. Chapter 4, when you read this, Read this letter. You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So these are, these are New Testament apostles, these are New Testament prophets that are completing the revelation that God has given. Taking the mystery that was left in the Old Testament about the coming and, 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 and outworking of Jesus Christ on the earth, fulfilling God's plan of redemption, and they're fulfilling that. They're completing the mystery. They're how are they doing that? Well, through their writing. Look at verse 9. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So there's this unique role of a prophet here, okay, as a foundational role. It's a role that completes the Bible, completes the New Testament, completes the revelation that God is intended to give for the church. To build itself on. And that revelation has been completed. So in that sense, there is no capital P prophecy going on anymore. No one's going no one is going, adding on to God's revelation, adding on to the mystery of Christ that's been revealed. Adding more to what the apostle said. Yeah, they got it right, but they, they haven't said everything. Here's more. That kind of prophecy is not biblical prophecy. And those offices of apostle and prophet in the capital A, capital P sense were given as foundational offices to the church, Ephesians 2.20, and they're not repeating today. Now, what the gift of prophecy means in a lowercase p sense and how that operates in the church, that's for an entirely another sermon. Okay, we're not in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 this morning, um, and so I'm not going to go there. But I will But I will tell you that... that, that that needs to be wrestled with in the, that lowercase p sense, not as the office of a prophet, but the gift of prophecy. But we're not going to, we're not going to spend much time on that this morning because we got to keep going. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Those were people who were gifted to to share the gospel in an extensive, expanding, fruitful way. Okay. To care. You're, just to make a practical example of this, what would the what's the gift of evangelism? Say, what's the gift of evangelism? Can we use that as a cop-out? <laughs> I mean, who, who in here readily and eagerly, now there, there probably is somebody in here that has the gift of evangelism, that finds it very easy to engage in conversation about Jesus Christ and leads people to the Lord Jesus very fruitfully. And oh, that the Lord would give more gifts like that to the church. We need the gift of evangelism operating in our church. But... That doesn't mean that we're not all called to care about the gospel and advance the gospel and share the gospel. It just means that some are uniquely gifted to carry on and share the gospel in a a fruitful way. Now, Timothy, if you remember, Paul's apostolic associate who was used with him to plant churches, Timothy didn't have the gift of evangelism. But he was put in a church and he was told in 2 Timothy 4, 5, to do the work of an evangelist? (laughs) He said, Timothy, I know you don't have it, but you got to (laughs) try. you got to get after it. Do that work. Share the gospel with people. So who are these evangelists? Well, these evangelists probably would have been people who stayed in a specific locale after the apostles and prophets had come through, after Paul had come through, preached the gospel, established a church. These evangelists would have been people in the church that carried on that local evangelistic work. Because Paul didn't assume when he arrived on the scene, preached the gospel, and planted a church that the work was done. That nobody needed to hear about Jesus because Paul showed up. Paul preached the gospel to everybody that needed to hear the gospel. No. All Paul did was show up in a city, parachute drop in run the risk, dive in, get after it, suffer, preach the gospel, establish the church, and then said, okay, you guys got it from here, I'll see you later. And then he would call his other apostles and co-workers in to, to shepherd that church and equip that church, that's what the letter of Titus is all about, establish this church, get it going, and become evangelistic in the community. And that's the work that we're in here right now. We're in the work of working within an established church to carry on a ministry where the gospel's already been planted. The gospel's been in Owensboro a long time. But the work of the gospel is not finished here. There's new generations that come along that need the gospel. And so we need to take the gospel to them as representatives of Christ in our own city in this local church. So that, that was the gift of the evangelists. And then you see the gifts of pastors and teachers. Sometimes these are grouped together. Sometimes they're separated in the ESV text here that I'm preaching from. They're separated. What's clear is that there is, a distinctive, there is a distinctive teaching role in the church that's not necessarily limited to the pastors. People can have the gift to teach the God's Word and not be called to the pastoral office. All right, But all pastors must be those who can teach. So I think that's the point here is that the pastors are teachers but not all teachers are necessarily pastors, so it's divided up here. The pastors are, would have been those who cared for the church, offered counsel, facilitated discipleship, administrated the church, prayed for the people, loved them well, exhorted and comforted believers and troubled saints, admi- administered the activities of the local assembly. That's pastors. They're local. They're shepherding. And then the teachers would have been those who helped the church to grow in a deeper understanding of the Scripture and how to live it out and obey Jesus. So what you see here is that all of these roles have one thing in common, don't they, at least? They're all a teaching role. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, they're all doing some form of teaching. And notice it kind of it, it goes from the beginning of the life of a church with the planting of it being an apostle and pro- the establishment of the church all the way through to its maintenance, okay? So, b- by means of the pastors and teachers who are caring for the church. So, let me make some applications before we get to this, uh, this idea of equipping and what that's all about. First of all, I, like I already said, the universal common thing that, ha- that all of these roles have in common is the, the office of teaching, the role of teaching. They all assumed teaching gifts. The apostles and prophets were the foundational teachers, the evangelists were perhaps itinerant teachers, and the shepherds, the pastors and the teachers, were the pastors that were teaching in the local congregation. So in one sense, the offices do not vary all that much. Christ's singular gift to the church is in providing men who can boldly, clearly, and persuasively teach the whole counsel of God. And that fits well with Paul's description of what pastors are to be. Pastors are not a special class of Christian. We are called to be everything that every other other Christian is called to be. We're just called to set an example and be able to teach. So the, the office of teaching is obviously very critical to the Lord Jesus. That he's given gifts of teaching to his church, which implies the church needs to be taught. The church needs to be continually taught. A second application, though, is I think we need to appreciate the diversity of leadership types that are needed for a church to be healthy and unified. He just didn't give one leadership gift to the church, did he? There's this apostolic gift. What's the apostolic leader do? Pushes out. Let's get out. Let's plant churches. Let's do ministry. I mean, they're pushing the church out. Then you got this prophetic gift. What's the, what's the prophetic gift doing? Pushing people down, right? Down into, God, into God's purposes and plans. Then you, and, and revealing the, the mysteries that were present, that were not yet fulfilled by the time of the writing of the letter to the Ephesians. Then the evangelists, they're pushing forward. They're wanting to take the gospel to the city more. And then you've got these pastors who are pushing in to carry fo- care for the church. And then you've got these teachers who are pushing up and wanting people to understand more of what God has done and who God is. What, what's the point? Jesus has given a diversity of leadership styles to his church too. And we, we don't need to think that this one particular leadership style or gift is the way that Jesus is going to build his church. It's not. As the diversity of the members is important, so the diversity of the leaders is important. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm most thankful for on our pastoral team right now. Good grief if we've got a diversity of gifts on that, on that team. And it's good. We need leaders who are strong at feeding God's people. We need leaders who are strong with heeding God's people. We need leaders who are strong with leading God's people. And very rarely will you find a man who has all those in equal proportion. An equal ability to lead, an equal ability to feed, an equal ability to heed. Which is why God's design for His churches was a plurality of leadership. Not a single pastor leading all of God's people. A third application is that in light of that is that we need a plurality of leadership in the church with diverse gift sets but who are nonetheless united in essence. Okay? We need a, a leadership a leadership that it has diversity of gift sets reflecting the Trinity, different roles, different functions. Not every pastor is doing what every other pastor is always doing. But nevertheless, have at the heart the care for the church that is consistent with their gifts and the way they can best build up the body. See, sometimes we can think, yeah, members, we need diverse gifts. We got to have diverse gifts to build up the body. But the pastors better all be the same and act the same and do the same things. I'm sorry, brothers, this is not biblical. A plurality of leadership is not given to the church so that all the leaders can be the same. A plurality of leaders is given to the church so that the church will have a diverse gift set on the leadership so that the members are better equipped in all those different gift sets. Can a pastor who's not gifted in a certain area equip other people who are, not, who are, not, who are gifted in that area very well? Well, probably not. So you need to have diversity present. But notice, they also need to be united. Just like the church membership needs to be united and diverse, so the church leadership needs to be united and diverse. They need to be in theological agreement on doctrine and mission and in philosophical agreement on vision and strategy. And I'm speaking very candidly. That was not always the case with this leadership team. We were one. We were not one in essence. We we could share the same doctrine, but we didn't share the same way that doctrine gets worked out. And that theological agreement, you also need philosophical agreement. That's what it means to have essence, the essence as one. We have that now. We did not always have that. But you recognize the essence as critical, the unity as critical, but also you appreciate and value the differences in role and function, recognizing and valuing different leadership styles. And, you know, one of the things that God has taught me in the short period of time that I've been privileged to serve this church as a pastor the last five years now has been the value of, of, of and, and the the incredible need for the work of the Holy Spirit in my own life to appreciate and value this the way I need to. Because here's the deal: it is so often the case that we can we, that leaders do not operate under authority very well. They tend to value they tend to value what they like and what they want to do, and they, but they don't, they, don't, they don't submit all those desires like the Trinity would call us, call us to do, to submit all those desires to the purposes of unity. And so what can happen is you can have these, if, if, if leaders aren't willing to submit to one another and defer to one another, then you can have incredible chaos and disunity. But notice what's happening here in verse, chapter 4, verse 2, This is the same path for leaders as it is for church members to maintain unity. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Would you pray for your leaders that we would be that way? Would you pray for us? Please pray for us. Pray for us that we would be humble and gentle and bear with one another in love when we don't see necessarily eye to eye on things or we struggle and we wrestle with how best to handle this. I'm telling you, this has been the way God has worked in my life. Huge, huge, hugely important. And what what has been most helpful is Trinitarian theology. That has been most helpful to me because it says, unified in essence, purpose, mission, different in function, role. Learn to value both. Value both. And don't pit one against the other. The Trinity does not behave that way. The spirit is glad. The Father is the Father. It doesn't want to be the Father. Father, you get all. The, you get to elect. I want to do that. The Spirit doesn't want to be the Son. The Spirit is happy being the Spirit. <laughs> he loves to exalt the Father and exalt the Son. And would that we, as church members and as as a leadership team, that we would be that well that that way as well. Pray for us to that end. Fourthly and finally, as an application here, we must not put pastors on a pedestal since our gifts are just part of the each one of verse 7. We all have a role to play, don't we? We all have a role to play. Look, pastors are not in a special class. They have a special function and role but they're not a separate elite class of Christ's gifts. They are among the gifts that Christ has given to the church. And he's given the pastors and teachers to equip the saints. Now, the word equip is an interesting word. It usually means fixing something that's broken, as when the nets were torn in Matthew 4.21 and Jesus mended them or equipped them. It can also refer to supplying something that is lacking. First Thessalonians 3.10 says, We desire to supply or equip what is lacking in your faith. So the point of verses 11 and 12 about leaders is that Christ not only gives very grace to each believer in the church, but he also gives leaders to the church whose job is to repair what's broken and supply what's lacking in the believers. And the fixing of what is broken and the supplying of what is lacking in the saints is not an end in itself. The leaders don't stop then and say, oh good, now we have fixed and supplied the saints. The work is done. No, the fixing and the supplying are meant to make the saints into servants or ministers. The role of the leaders is not done until they have helped and directed the members to carry out all the ministry that Christ has entrusted to them. And that is a high calling for leaders. That's what Jesus is going to hold me accountable for. Not how well did you preach. Did your preaching, did your other ministry serve to equip those people to steward their gifts? That's a high calling. Which also means, members, if you want to help me on the day of judgment, be willing to be equipped. Right? <laughs> Willingness receptive to the equipping ministry of leadership is critical here. One commentator says the model Paul presents is one of mutual service to the church community and not one of professionals serving a group of consumers. Jesus gave gifted leaders for the purpose of preparing all the gifted saints For the work of the ministry, which in turn has the final goal of building up the body of Christ. So to that we now turn. So point number one, we honor Jesus as the giver of gifts. Point number two, we honor leaders as the equippers of saints. Point number three, we honor members as the doers of ministry. Notice verse 12 again. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So gifted individuals are given to the church for the purpose of preparing all the saints toward the goal of service or ministry. Leaders have been given by Christ to equip believers for the exercise of their gifts in Christian service so that by both means, both types of ministry, the body of Christ may be built up. See, the body of Christ is is defective in two ways here. It can be defective if it doesn't have good leadership, which is equipping the saints and helping them discern where God has called them and gifted them and engaging them in ministry. But it can also be defective if the leaders are not equipping. Okay? So if the leaders are doing the ministry for the saints or the saints are not being equipped for the ministry, both can be destructive and unhealthy for fostering the kind of diversity that Paul wants to see here. So the implication of this idea that leaders are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the implications is that every member of the church is a minister. Every member must do the work of ministry. This is certainly supported as we're going to see next week when Pastor, Pastor Jonathan picks up in verse 13 through 16. In verse 16 where we see the building up of the church requires, requires the work of every single person. The body cannot be up, built up according to verse 16 unless each part is working properly and doing what it's supposed to be doing. So if this is going to happen, we need to understand the roles of leaders and members. And here's the key insight. Leaders minister to us and with us, but not for us. Leaders minister to us and with us, but not for us. Leaders don't serve the church by doing ministry on behalf of its members. Leaders serve the church by ministering to the people, by equipping them to do ministry themselves. Here's what one commentator said. Christ gives gifted leaders to the church not to do the ministry for the various members of the body while they, while they passively receive, but to help prepare each one of them to actively serve in the ways that he has gifted them. I'll tell you what, that fires me up as a pastor. That makes me excited. I want to do that. I want to help. And I know all, I speak for an entire leadership team, I think. I, we all want to help our membership discern where God has gifted and enable them to serve and minister and then to release you, give you the authority to do it. We're not interested first and foremost in getting you on our plan. We're interested first and foremost in discerning what is the Lord doing? Who has he given us? What are we called to do? And then stewarding those gifts to accomplish that mission. Because Jesus didn't make make a mistake in giving you to this church. And we're convinced of that as leaders. John Piper says, For most Christians, corporate church life is a Sunday morning worship service and that's all. A smaller percentage add to that a class of some kind, perhaps Sunday morning or Wednesday evening, in which there's very little interpersonal ministry. Now don't misunderstand me, Piper says. I believe in the tremendous value of corporate worship and I believe that solid teaching times are usually crucial for depth and strength. And I say, amen, I agree with that. Piper goes on, but you, can't, you simply can't read the New Testament in search of what church life is supposed to be like and come away thinking that worship services and classes are the sum total of what a church was supposed to be. And that's true. The church will be enriched In worship and mission, when everyone is serving. When the leaders are doing all the work, the church is headed for extinction. And the leaders will burn out and they'll quit. Ed Stetzer says, the reach of the church is limited. Listen to this. Please listen to this. The reach of the church is limited as long as there is too high a view of the clergy. If the view is that the pastors the only one who can do certain things, then the pastor will be the only one doing certain things. And the losers in addition to the pastor will be the pastor's family, the church and the people who refuse to serve. That's a faithful word from Stetzer. And he, he like don't we want our church to have the maximum reach we can for the glory of Jesus for the kingdom of God? Amen. We do. That's what the, we should have that heart. God, we don't we don't want just Heritage Baptist Church to grow. We want your kingdom to grow. We want to, be in a, we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of pushing and advancing the mission. Well, that's going to be limited if we have a too high a role of the pastor. And if the pastor is not functioning correctly. Most of us are able to keep clear in our minds the origin and the goal of Christian ministry. Its origin is in Christ and the spiritual gifts that He gives the gifted people in the church. Its goal is the upbuilding of the body of Christ in knowledge, faith, and love. But what we don't always keep as clear is the living, dynamic, God-appointed process that moves from origin to goal. And notice very carefully, Paul is giving us the, the process here. In verses 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, he gives us sort of the origin. Where did all these gifts come from? Why is Jesus gifting the church in this way? He's doing that. And then the goal is at the end of verse 12, to the building up of the body. But the means, the process, is there in verse 11 and 12. Leadership equipping saints for ministry. God gives to a church spiritual leaders whose role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And from the work of the ministry by the saints, the body is built up. God's pattern for producing people with powerful faith in genuine love, is not to have the pastors do all the work of the ministry. They're to equip the saints to do the ministry. And as the, saint, the saints are not a, class, a special class of Christians, just like the pastors aren't a special class of Christians. They are you, all of you, who have set yourselves apart for God through faith in Jesus Christ. And according to God's pattern, the upbuilding of the body in faith and love is the immediate result of the ministry of the laity and not the clergy. I am happy for the rest of my life as long as Jesus gives me strength to take a backseat role to serve you all. That's what I want to do. I want to serve. And I want to be faithful in this season, in this role, for however long Jesus gives me, to serve you all by equipping and blessing and encouraging and strengthening and supplying what needs what needs to be supplied. And I think that all of our leadership team desires that, all the pastors want to work to equip you in that way. So you may be saying as I close here, I don't know how I'm gifted. You know, I think I mean, I do these things. I minister in these ways. How do I know if I'm gifted? Well, I wish I had more time to do this application, okay? Those of you who are in a community group, which I pray is a growing number of you, I sent this week to your group leader a, a, a way a list of spiritual gifts and questions to ask. And I'd love for you to dive into community, dive into, dive into your group, dive in with those and, and talk through that stuff together. And if you need a copy of it, I'll be happy to make it, make it available to you. I'll be happy to send that out church wide this week. And you can read the article for yourself if that would be beneficial. But I'm telling you the way you discern gifts is in the, in the process of doing ministry. Okay. You'd, the, the biggest way I think that people trip up on how to figure out how, what their gift is is they kind of wait for like a, an impression from the Lord to figure it out. Like, ah, uh, okay, I'd like to do this. Well, that's good. Part of understanding what your gift is is what your affinity is for, what you like doing, what you're good at. But another thing is just availability. Making yourself available to the Lord and saying, Lord, what ways does this church need gifting? And then serving in various capacities and seeing what God blesses. That's how we discern, oftentimes, what our spiritual gift is. It's by just opening. Okay, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know what to do. I'll just, I'll just show up. I mean, I mean, when I, I don't like, I don't like to talk about myself very much, but I'll use this as a personal illustration because I don't know another illustration to talk about. But when I showed up here in 2003, I didn't know anything about this, and I didn't know what spiritual gifts were, or what it was all about, or how to figure it out. I just, you start serving. So I offered to teach class or I serve in the nursery or I clean the building or uh, back in those days, we those days gone, praise God. Um, you know, so all the old HBC folks appreciate that. So, um, you know, just, you start doing stuff and you see what God's blessing and you see where people affirm you and you see, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you start to get a sense, okay, well, I like doing this and I think people are blessed by it. So I guess I should keep doing that. But the only way you know that is to do a lot of stuff to do a lot of different kinds of things and make yourself available to the Lord. Just plug holes, offer to help, and see what God blesses. And over time, you'll begin to discern how God has gifted you to make you a blessing to our church. So music team, come on forward and, uh, and lead us and I'll close us in prayer. And Pastor Jonathan will take us uh, deeper next week as far as how this looks practically as we seek to work out every member ministry in our church. Father, thank you for this time together, for the opportunity to sit before your word, to be instructed and shaped and challenged by it. We always want to be open, Lord, to what you're saying in your word. We never want to understand, uh, come to the conclusion that we know everything, that we've understood everything we're called to understand. We want to sit humbly and submissively before your word and say, teach us, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray that that would be the heart of every one of us here this morning, that we would be eager to receive what you have for us. Thank you for gifting us. Thank you for gifting every single person who's a part of this body in this room for the work of ministry. Help us as leaders to equip them well, to do all that we can to empower and enable their fruitful service for you. And, Lord, um, bless us to this end with, with, with greater fruitfulness as we seek to honor the diversity that you have placed in our body.